Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. We're delighted to have you join us today. Our guest is Lele Wang Ekvel, who is one of the most distinguished bankruptcy workout attorneys in Southern California. And we'll be talking her to, to, we'll be talking with her today about what's happening in the finance workout space, the bankruptcy space, in terms of what's going on with COVID and, and the modern economy. Ms. Wang Eckville concentrates her practice on insolvency and bankruptcy-related matters, including workouts, business reorganizations, and committee and receiver representation in a wide variety of industries. She has been recognized throughout her career as a leading bankruptcy lawyer. She's a past president and director of the Orange County Bankruptcy Forum. She's also a past president of the Orange County Bar Association, past president of the Orange County Legal Aid Society. And we are delighted and honored to have her with us today on this podcast. Ms. Eckville, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Howard. Glad to be here. Tell us generally, we know we're in a very unusual and difficult financial environment in terms of small businesses uh, and individuals. What are you seeing, especially in terms of small businesses? How are small businesses who have basically lost most, if not all, of their revenue responding in this crisis? What are they doing legally? What, what are they doing in terms of business? Well, we've um, actually been approached by many small businesses in recent months. Uh, at first, when the pandemic first shut down all of the businesses, uh, there were access to PPP loans and other aid. Uh, since then, uh, that has largely uh, been exhausted and many businesses that have exhausted their PPP funds or other financial aid are now looking at laying off employees if they have not already done so. And some of them are just simply shutting their doors. Others are looking at whether or not there are opportunities to negotiate with their landlords and with their lenders to um, get some kind of reprieve until things can be back to normal. So um, most small businesses tend to have uh, lease space. And so landlords, um, some landlords are amenable to some kind of partial rent relief, um, but other landlords are not so um, cooperative. Well, let's talk about the options. What happens, for example, we've heard reports that many people are simply walking away. They're not taking any legal action whatsoever. They're, they're simply at the end of, of, of the rope uh, and they just walk away. So legally, what are the risks uh, a business owner simply walking away? What are the legal risks that that, that, that follow to that business owner? It depends on the case. It depends on whether or not the owner of the business has signed any personal guarantees. Um, many SBA loans require personal guarantees. So if that business has personal guarantees, uh, then the owner, by walking away from the business, does not necessarily eliminate all of his or her uh, liabilities associated with the business. Um, likewise, with um, many commercial leases, uh, the individual owner sometimes is asked to sign a personal guarantee of the lease. Um, it could be uh, potentially a partial guarantee or a, a full guarantee, depending on what was negotiated. So um, in many cases where the small business is shutting down, um, if the owner has exposure on either personal guarantees or other uh, debts of the business, then shutting down doesn't necessarily solve all of the problem for the business owner. Well, let's talk about the legal options for, for the debtor then, for the owner. For example, could the owner do something privately, uh, like seeking an assignment for the benefit of the creditors and attempting to work out with all creditors and, and, and resolve the matter? So most of the business owners are trying to work things out privately um, by negotiating with landlords, with lenders, um, 
and as, as I said earlier, some landlords are cooperative, some are not. So um, it just depends on the case. In terms of an assignment for benefit of creditors, that's a statutory scheme set up in California. It looks very similar to a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. However, it doesn't resolve the um, personal liability of the individual owner. It is simply a mechanism for taking the assets of the company, um, monetizing those assets, and having the proceeds distributed to the creditors of the business. But it still leaves the person, unlike a bankruptcy, final bankruptcy proceeding, it still leaves the debtor liable legally for whatever has not been taken care of. It does, but um, the debtor won't have any assets remaining after they engage in a general assignment for benefit of creditors under that statutory scheme. The debtor basically assigns all of its assets to a fiduciary who is charged with taking the assets of the company and monetizing those assets and paying the proceeds to creditors of the business. Um, neither bankruptcy nor assignment for benefit of creditor of the business will protect the individual owner. So for the individual owner, what are the bankruptcy options? Uh, can you negotiate a pre-bankruptcy workout and attempt to go to court with a, with, with, with a packaged plan? Uh, do some people attempt that? Um, they do. Some, um, especially larger corporations, um, recently have entered into bankruptcy with a prepackaged plan. Guitar Center recently filed uh, with a prepackaged Chapter 11 plan, but it's less um, likely in a smaller business setting to have the resources to uh, be able to negotiate such a uh, pre-pack um, and to enter into the bankruptcy with a pre-packaged plan. Um, the business certainly has lots of options. The business could file Chapter 7. Business could uh, do the assignment for benefit of creditors. Um, the business um, owner, however, um, is not necessarily protected by either of those options. So when it comes to the owner of the business, if there are personal guarantees or other debts of the business that the owner may be personally liable for, such as payroll taxes or other types of trust fund taxes like sales tax, then the owner needs to be thinking, what are my options as an individual, um, even though the company could be shut down in the uh, various different ways, uh, there may still be liability out there that um, the creditors will try to seek to uh, collect against the owner. And are there special liabilities given what's happened that may come up? I know there's been some talk about audits of the money that's been received under the CARES Act, the, the PPP payments that are going to be audited about whether they were used, those funds were used uh, the way they should have been used under the statute. Are there ongoing audits that could add additional risk uh, for people who may not have completely complied with the requirements of, of the uh, CARES Act? I'm sure there will be, but it's um, so preliminary right now. Many of the PPP loans um, have not even started to be, um, many of the, uh, the portals to be able to apply to have those loans forgiven aren't even available yet. Um, so it's uh, it's probably something we will see um, over the course of next year, but at this point, it's probably not very um, prevalent. In terms of the business, something that has gotten a fair amount of publicity is the new Small Business Reorganization Act. Uh, which permits simplified Chapter 11 proceedings, simplified reorganization proceedings. Uh, what is that? How does it work? And is it being used? So this um, Small Business Reorganization Act um, was enacted in February of 2020. And um, it's a streamlined Chapter 11 process for small businesses with debts of less than $2.7 and um, in through the CARES Act, which um, was passed in March of this year, that debt limit of 2.7 million was actually increased to 7.5 million. And so a 
business that has debt of less than 7.5 million could be eligible for the Small Business Reorganization Act and be, um, be able to avail itself of some of the benefits of um, Small Business Reorganization Act. Well, what are the benefits for the business of doing that, that uh, Chapter 11 proceeding with the changes of the Small Business Reorganization Act? Does that provide advantages for certain businesses to use that proceeding? So the Small Business Reorganization Act was enacted to um, allow smaller, mid-sized businesses to be able to avail itself of Chapter 11 benefits without some of the uh, high costs and delays of Chapter 11. So um, there were processes put in place that would allow a plan to be um, filed and confirmed quicker than it would normally be able to be done in a Chapter 11. So for example, under Small Business Reorganization Act, uh, a subchapter five debtor would have to file their plan within 90 days. There's a case status conference very early on in the case where the judge will sit down with the parties and try to help facilitate a speedy exit from the Chapter 11. Um, a couple of the cost-saving measures of the subchapter five includes uh, the elimination of a appointment of a creditor's committee. So in a normal chapter 11, when a creditor's committee is appointed, the creditor's committee can hire its own counsel and accountants and financial advisors at the cost of the business. So um, that could be a substantial cost. In addition, the Small Business Reorganization Act subchapter five eliminates uh, the requirement to pay quarterly fees to the United States Trustee's Office, which is an arm of the Department of Justice. And those fees can also be substantial because they are calculated based on the percentage of disbursements made by the debtor. So in a business that has uh, perhaps uh, limited assets but substantial receipts and disbursements, the elimination of this fee could be you know, very beneficial. Let's take a step back for those of those who may be listening who are not familiar with with Chapter 11, the, the reorganization part of the bankruptcy code. Uh, aside from the Small Business Reorganization Act, for people to see the what may be the advantages of it, larger companies have been able to take advantage of it because under reorganization, uh, they can do a plan that that allocates assets. There's even a possibility of retaining equity ownership in the company. But essentially, it is a plan of reorganization that often permits the existing equity holders and people running the business to continue. But that is a to see what the SBRA did. That's a very expensive proceeding, is it not? Given what's involved in terms of creditors committee and representation. Yes. Yeah, so it's definitely a very costly process um, to get from the beginning of the case to the end of the case where you have a plan that's confirmable. There are many legal hurdles um, to confirming a plan that would allow you to retain the business, keep the business going, keep the employees, and to pay back your debts over time. So that's what a normal Chapter 11 plan would look like is basically you stay in business and you use the revenue from the business to pay back your creditors over time. And so the so SBA... Oh, sorry. Uh, please, well, the SBRA, the Small Business Reorganization Act, its purpose by changing some of the expensive procedures, its purpose was to make available to smaller businesses a less expensive uh, variation and get the benefits of Chapter 11. I guess we could call it Chapter 11 light. So uh, again, so now that we've seen the background of Chapter 11, how does the SBRA then make function in a way that may be more efficient for the small business. So in addition to some of these um, cost-saving measures, um, it is also easier to confirm a plan in a SBRA case. Uh, basically, the debtor simply has to be able to demonstrate that they are committing to repay their disposable income over a, anywhere between three to five years to its creditors so that even if creditors object to the plan, 
if they're able to demonstrate they're dedicating three to five years of disposable income, the plan is likely to be confirmed. That's very different than a normal Chapter 11 plan where uh, there a creditor who opposes the plan could potentially derail the uh, confirmation of the plan. Moreover, in a normal Chapter 11, if owner of the business wants to retain their equity in the business, they normally have to pay for it. So, and they have to pay for it from outside sources, not from the business operation revenue. So uh, SBRA um, makes it a lot easier for an owner to retain their interest in the business without having to pay for keeping that interest. So th those are probably the biggest benefits of the um, SBRA subchapter five provisions. Um, now, so I mentioned earlier that the CARES Act increased the debt limit to 7.5 million, which is um, captures, I think, substantially more businesses than the $2.7 million uh, debt limit. But that um, increase is temporary. So that increase will go away on March 27th of 2021 unless Congress extends it further. So for now, um, you know, businesses with debts of, you know, 7.5 or less have this potential avenue of being able to reorganize in the Chapter 11 under this more streamlined process. But um, if that March 27, 2021 date is not extended, then um, that option may be eliminated for many businesses unless their debts are, you know, under 2.7 million, which is, I would say, a tiny business as opposed to a small business. Yeah. Well, this is very interesting because uh, Congress and, and everyone understood, but even before COVID, that there had to be additional relief for small businesses, as I understand this, that it was simply uh, whether you use the word unfair or inefficient or however you approach it, to only give the benefits of the Chapter 11 reorganization to companies that could afford uh, the great expenses. So the SBRA comes along and gives a different, a lighter version of, of, uh, of Chapter 11, cuts the cost, gives the debtor more ability to cut down the amount of the debt because uh, the plan can be approved even if a creditor objects. And so its intention was to make this available, the SBRA, to small businesses. What the CARES Act did was increase the amount of debt available, so expanded its availability. Is it being used? Is, is the SBRA Chapter 11 proceeding being used by small business because of its advantages? It is starting to be used. It's not... Um... It has not been widely used as of yet. Um, it is a fairly new uh, bill that was enacted. And um, like I said earlier, many businesses are, are trying to avoid bankruptcy. It, it should always be a, an option of last resort. So rather than just launching into um, Chapter 11 or even SBRA Chapter 11, they're businesses are trying to negotiate with their creditors to avoid bankruptcy. And, um, you know, although it, the SBRA does streamline and make it a little bit cheaper and um, makes it faster to try to get a plan confirmed, it is not, um, it is not so efficient <laughs> that it's something that a um, business wants to launch into without really exhausting all of their other options and alternatives. Because there are still a number of things that a business has to do in the Chapter 11, whether they qualify as a um, subchapter 5 debtor or not, that are still required of them, such as monthly financial reportings and other reports that are required by the Office of the United States Trustee. And then there are still a number of motions that um, typically have to be filed in a, in a Chapter 11 case that still need to be filed in a SBRA case. So um, it's, it's still, a, you know, it's still costly to be able to um, successfully maneuver and your way through an SBRA case. Um, it's not as expensive, but it's, it's not, you know, super cheap either. So it's not something that you just want to launch into without 
having fully exhausted your other options? Well, we've been talking about some of the options in this current economic environment, uh, options that can be taken by business owners, including bankruptcy options. And one of the bankruptcy options we've spoken about is, is the new uh, lighter, we can call it Chapter 11 light, that small businesses may take advantage of. Let's take a break because you know those of you listening to this podcast can get MCLA credit, a full hour of MCLA credit for it through the Daily Journal. We'll now take a short break so you can hear how you may obtain that MCLA credit. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're now back from the break. We've spoken about some of the options available, especially to business owners in the current environment. We've spoken about Chapter 11. We haven't mentioned the other possibilities, and perhaps we should just touch on them to have them covered under the bankruptcy code. Our, a chapter, just filing a, a straightforward Chapter 7 proceeding is, is another option that people may take at this time, just as they've always been able to. Uh, is, is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so a Chapter 7 for business, uh, basically, business files a chapter seven, a bankruptcy trustee is appointed. The trustee comes from a panel of pre-approved trustees and they're randomly selected. Trustee then uh, essentially is charged with monetizing the assets of the business and then using the proceeds to pay creditors. The trustee also will have standing to investigate any kind of transfers that were made by the business especially if there were a lot of transfers to insiders of the business shortly before the filing, the trustee will be scrutinizing those. Uh, the trustee will be looking at whether or not there were preferential payments made to creditors. So a preferential payment is where a creditor receives payment within 90 days of the bankruptcy filing that allows the creditors, the creditor to receive more than they would have otherwise. So um, trustees, vested with all of those rights and powers and essentially takes over and becomes the owner of the business and has to try to monetize lawsuit claims, avoidance claims, the assets of the business. And then at the end of the day, the proceeds are distributed in accordance with the priority scheme in the bankruptcy code, which means um, secure creditors first, administrative priority creditors um, next, um, administrative uh, priority creditors include the trustees fees and the trustees uh, professionals fees. And then you have um, other priority creditors like taxes and uh, consumer deposits. And then you have the next tier, which would be the general and secure creditors. And those are usually your vendors. So um, depending on how much money is collected and, um, you know, there may or may not be any distribution to uh, creditors um, or there may be distribution to priority creditors, but not enough to pay unsecured creditors, general unsecured creditors. So um, it, it just depends on how much is collected and how much is um, how much the debt is and then um, the creditors will receive their pro rata share. And so we've been talking about businesses, but you mentioned there are personal issues here as well, aside from the businesses. I, before we get into more complicated talk about personal issues, there is one other chapter of the bankruptcy code we haven't mentioned that mostly applies 
two individuals in a different kind of way, and that's Chapter 13 that individuals file. What are the options there for individuals uh, in, uh, in, in, in dealing with, with, with the bankruptcy code? Chapter 13 is a little bit like a Chapter 11, where the debtor would be allowed to uh, propose a plan that would uh, pay back their debts over time. Um, but it is only available to individuals. So it's not available to a corporate entity. Now, if the individual is a sole proprietor, then uh, they could be eligible for a Chapter 13. But the debt limits under Chapter 13 are pretty low. Um, so, you know, it could be a way to reorganize, um, but it's um, only available to individuals and um, you have to meet the debt qualifications. Now you've spoken about, in terms of individuals, uh, in the discussion about businesses, what you talked about the risk of the individual having signed a personal guarantee, uh, making the individual liable for the, for, for the corporate or, or the business debts. And of course, a personal guarantee, uh, in terms of small business, often hurts people the most in terms of creditors ultimately at a judgment going after a home, going after a residence. And something very significant has happened in the California law regarding the homestead law uh, for for uh, residences that is providing an incentive for people to wait or to try to delay to do anything until after January 1st. Tell us what's happened with the homestead law and how that is affecting current planning of people in financial difficulties. So just um, just September of this year, uh, Governor Newsom signed into law a bill that um, significantly increased the homestead exemption for California residents. So prior to this uh, law being um, signed, and it goes into effect January 1st of 2021. Um, prior to that, an individual um, in California would be allowed to exempt anywhere between 75,000 to 175,000 of the equity available in their home. Now that's, um, it depends on you know, your age, your physical condition, whether you're the head of a household, but um, that, limit was last adjusted in 2013. Pardon so, me for interrupting you, but I think it's important, if I may, uh, to, to see this in the context of the significance of the homestead exemption, because the homestead exemption, as I understand it, is the amount of equity in the property that will be protected from creditors' claims, not from the lender on the property, a, a, a lender, a bank who holds a mortgage trustee. It doesn't affect that. But in terms of the equity, other creditors, people who've gotten judgments uh, on contracts or, for example, a small business owner on a guarantee, the theory of the homestead is that's the level, that's protected. The creditor comes after the house. That amount of value in the house is protected. And before January 1 of, 20, uh, of 2021, the maximum amount that would be protected varied between 75000 and 150000 What's going to happen on January 1st? So it's 75000 to 175000 but you're correct. Um, you know, the homestead exemption was enacted to basically allow um, an individual who's facing judgment creditors um, trying to force the liquidation of their assets to be able to uh, protect certain assets that are important, such as their home or their vehicle or tools of the trade. So 75,000 to 175,000 of the home's equity was um, protected under the current homestead laws. Now in January, um, that will be increased to the higher of 300,000 or the median home price of your county not to exceed 600,000. So for example, if, um, if you live in Orange County, LA County, or Ventura County, you would basically be eligible for up to $600,000 of the homestead. Whereas when Riverside County, the median home price is around 441,000. So you would, if you're in Riverside, 
uh, be eligible for 441,000 of the homestead exemption. So that's a significant change because as we all know here in California, it $75,000 of equity in a home is not enough for you to take that money and go buy a new home it, or any kind of home. Um, even no matter you know how, how much you downscale your living standards. And so essentially it, it was almost meaningless. And this is, um, this provision is allowing people to basically um, of prevent a bankruptcy trustee from selling their home and being able to stay in a home and not become homeless. So I think it better effectuates the, um, the intent of the homestead and also reflects the economic realities of of today's times. This is tremendously significant, and it's something that has not gotten, I think, the amount of widespread knowledge that it deserves. I mean, in terms of policy between creditors and debtor and debtors, this is a major, major change. It, by protecting six hundred thousand inequity in the house, and that, of course, that's the maximum amount. But in Los Angeles County and Orange, and some of the Bay Area counties and others along the coast. Uh, you quickly hit the 600,000. Uh, and so by permitting that amount to be homesteaded, if you put yourself in the position of a debtor, for example, and you're looking at this today, and you say, my goodness, if I take action today to avoid this, I'm only limited in the proceeding, perhaps, to the 75 to 175,000. But now I can protect 600,000. And this dramatically affects the way creditors, uh, certain creditors will look at, at the legal options available to them uh, as well, doesn't it? Um, it will, and it certainly will affect the bankruptcy trustees, especially if an individual were to file Chapter 7. Uh, the trustee most likely with this higher level of homestead exemption protection for the debtor may not be able to force a sale of the home. Um, it is, you know, not, it hasn't gotten very much press although all the bankruptcy practitioners and the bankruptcy trustee and the courts are certainly aware of this change. And, um, you know, I speculate whether or not that is the reason there has not been a whole lot of uh, individual filings uh, currently and whether people, uh, lawyers are waiting until the first of the year to file their uh, clients' uh, Chapter 7 cases for the individuals to be able to avail themselves of the higher homestead. But from a, you know, from a, a technical legal standpoint for those in the area, it's significant, but it's also uh, not, it's also very significant from a, a public policy uh, standpoint, uh, changing critical relationships between creditors and, and debtors who are homeowners. Uh, that raises a whole other issue in terms of this preference for homeowners in, in counties that have high home prices. But it does, for that group, uh, change dramatically the the uh, relation, the, the creditor-debtor relationship in terms of what creditor options may be. And, and as you said, it, it was impacted by concerns about homelessness. It was impacted by concerns about what COVID-19 is doing to small businesses where people who've had personal guarantees. Uh, it was uh, impacted by people's view of the overall impact of COVID on the economy. Uh, and so um, this is an enormously significant issue of public policy. It says one of the things about legal issues that we emphasize and don't, that sometimes some of the things, because they're viewed as technical, uh, are not simply given the attention they deserve uh, because they are technical and, and essentially the major policy issues that are involved somehow get glossed over. So after January 1, when the homestead exemption comes in, you ant do you anticipate a rise in informal filings, especially what's going on in the economy in terms of, of, of bankruptcy filings, for example? Um, I think there could be an increase in individual filings. Um, in terms of commercial filings, they're um, already much higher this year than last year. And... Um, we expect that to continue to uh, increase. And, you know, it's again, if, it, because bankruptcy is meant to be sort of the last resort, um, if a business owner does have a personal guarantee, 
they should be talking to uh, the lender about trying to work something out. And with the homestead being increased, it is potentially uh, possible to talk to the lender, show them what you own or and what's exempted, which would never be available to paying the, the personal guarantee and, um, and maybe get something worked out so that they never even have to go into a uh, bankruptcy proceeding. Yeah, tremendously important point. After January 1, the debtor, when you talk about lender, you're talking about the lender on the business, not on the house, but the lender on the business, a creditor or lender on the business can be approached in a, with, with a different context uh, by the debtor or the lessee, the, the person in business, because suddenly the dynamics of what's available have changed dramatically, and so it provides a greater incentive in, I would think, a significant number of cases for creditors to agree to voluntary uh, uh, to voluntary final arrangements, uh, rather than proceed with the uh, uh, with, with with the formal uh, legal collection and and, and 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 bankruptcy proceedings. So we've talked about these options all for debtors and the significance of the of the homestead. I just want to say I assume that bankruptcy lawyers are very busy today. I mean, given this economy, uh, we're very grateful that you've taken the hour out to do this. Uh, but I think that uh, by the bankruptcy practice, I assume you, you, you are very busy today. Um, we are uh, seeing quite a bit of activity, yes. So let's talk, we've talked about it from the debtor's perspective. I think it's worth also now talking about some of the things from a, from a creditor perspective. Uh, what, so if a creditor, if you're, a creditor approaches this, uh, in a variety, understands the risks of the economy, understands the bankruptcy risks. What kind of things should creditors be aware of in, in these relationships, steps they should take and things they should be concerned about? So given these unprecedented times, I think that companies need to be very vigilant about their receivables and be monitoring those very closely. Um, in the past, there are businesses that uh, have been very healthy, very strong businesses that are um, affected by uh, the pandemic that was completely, you know, unexpected. So take Hertz Rental Car, for example. That um, company was financially sound, and then all of a sudden, people stopped traveling, nobody needed rental cars and it filed back in April, I believe. So um, you don't want to find yourself, if you can avoid it, being a creditor in the bankruptcy case, because as we discussed earlier, there's a priority scheme by which creditors are paid in the bankruptcy. And sometimes when you're at that lower tier um, of general unsecured creditor, then you may or may not get repaid, or even if you are repaid, it's a fraction of what you're owed. So it's really important, you know, even if you have um, customers or, you know, vendors that you're dependent on, that your business is dependent on, that you're vigilant about, um, you know, whether or not the receivables are being kept current. And if they're not being kept current, you need to be thinking, what, what can you do to minimize your downside in the event of a bankruptcy filing by your, um, by your customer? And you may also want to be thinking about you know, vendors or key suppliers, because if your supply chain um, supplier files bankruptcy, it disrupts what you're able to do in your business and it could um, potentially affect your otherwise healthy business. So um, the key really is be vigilant, keep your ears open, keep your eyes open, be, um, be you know, checking to see if there are um, any economic um, issues being encountered by uh, cus key customers and key suppliers and, um, and try to find ways to Make sure receivables are kept as current as possible um, so that you're not being left holding the bag in the bankruptcy with a, with a large unsecured claim. The um, 
the other you know issue that you have to be aware of is in the event of a bankruptcy if you have a contract with the debtor that's in bankruptcy you may be required to continue to do business with the debtor even though you may be owed money so um you might want to um, look at your contracts and make sure that uh, there are provisions that would allow you to terminate the contract um, if there are defaults on you know fairly short term so that you're not left um, waiting 90 to 120 days or even a year um, in a bankruptcy case where you can't terminate the contract and meanwhile you you're owed a couple million dollars so um, there are you know things that you can do proactively even if you think your um, customers or your suppliers are financially sound um, it doesn't hurt to be proactive and to take a look at your existing agreements to make sure that you know in the event of a bankruptcy by the other party to the contract you know where does that leave you well tell us about what are the kind of a contractual arrangements that in the bankruptcy proceeding would essentially compel uh, the existed, existing performance of the contract even though there were no payments? So for example, in bankruptcy, there is such a thing called an executory contract. It's basically a contract where um, there are uh, provisions that are that still have not been performed that if you breach, it would be considered um, a material breach. And um, so, you know, supply contracts, for example, is um, is usually considered executory. Uh, franchise agreements are usually considered executory. And if it if it is an executory contract, then even if you're owed money, you can't just go and terminate and stop providing services under that contract or providing goods under that contract you're obligated to continue to do business and to continue to provide goods or services. And um, down the road, um, before a debtor could assume that executory contract or assign the executory contract, um, they have to cure the payments that are due. But um, you may not find that out until months and months into the case. So you could be owed a couple million and you're continuing to having to provide goods and services uh, for many months to a chapter 11 debtor. And, um, and then, you know, if the debtor decides that the chapter 11 is not workable and they end up converting to a chapter seven and they reject that contract, then you're not going to get paid that pre-bankruptcy claim that, that you're owed. So it's, uh, it could potentially make you um, have a greater liability than you would otherwise have. And that's why it's important to be vigilant about monitoring those receivables and uh, checking to see what your contracts provisions contain. The other um, you know, area is you know, try to uh, see if you can elevate your claim to a secured status um, because those, as you know, under the distribution scheme we talked about earlier, those get paid first from their collateral. So that is a better position than being a general unsecured creditor. The other um, area where you could potentially minimize your downside is to um, seek a letter of credit um, from, um, from the company that you're doing business with that would secure any default. The letter of credit is usually posted by a third party, not the debtor. So if the debtor does file bankruptcy, the letter of credit could be drawn down on and it doesn't implicate the automatic stay that kicks into place when the debtor files bankruptcy. How does all this apply to commercial leases? What is, what is the impact? How does this apply to the landlords in commercial leases? So some landlords will get um, a letter of credit as part of um, a deposit, and so that could help alleviate you know the problem a little bit. Landlords have um, you know pretty solid rights in the bankruptcy, although some of the courts have been under these times um, a little um, more um, tenant friendly, but. Um, but generally speaking, um, 
you're supposed to be paying your landlords um, current um, during the bankruptcy in order to be allowed to uh, stay, you know, stay in the space. Um, so the lease is not treated as an executory contract. The, the, the payment still must be kept current. It's 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 covered under the same code section, but it's uh, slightly different in terms of their rights and their remedies. It's so interesting that you've mentioned letters of credit because, you know, that raises what happens in these kind of economic environments in terms of efficiency costs or inefficiency uh, burdens uh, that are added to the economic arrangements. The letter of credit historically is a way that has been used to reduce risk, uh, starting in, you know, in, in uh, international trade and in all sorts of other things. You obtain the letter of credit and a bank stands behind the obligation under the letter of credit, but historically it's been used in risk environments. And so what's so interesting here is to see this device, which historically played a critical role in the development of, of trade, both domestically and internationally, but uh, in a more secure economic environment, is not used as much because people have confidence in the supply chain and in, in other people. To see the letter of credit now coming back in all sorts of situations, but that adds an additional cost to what otherwise would be what we consider normal economic activity, doesn't it? Well, I didn't realize it went away. <laughs> um, I, I've had you know several large clients um, utilize the uh, letter of credit as a way of minimizing risk um, throughout the years. So um, I didn't realize it wasn't No, I, I may have overstated. I didn't mean it went away, but I meant it, it, in, in more secure economic environments, it has been used less. Uh, you know, when you have confidence in a supply chain, it may be used less. It certainly has not gone away, but it, it, is, it has been used less, and now people are, I think, paying more attention to it. Uh, for example, landlords asking for letters of credit from tenants is, is something that people have not have looked are looking at in a different way today than they were, for example, five years ago. I assume. Right. Well, and and obviously it's difficult to get a letter of credit because before the bank will stand behind that letter of credit, the bank's going to come to the business and say, "I need you to pledge some collateral so that if I am called upon um, to, you know, to honor this letter of credit, I have a source of." assets that I can go and get recoup my payment. So um, usually you have to you know demonstrate or, or give the bank a, a bank account and put money in it that's equal to the amount of the letter of credit. Um, so you know it may not be um, viable for some businesses in today's times especially to be able to you know put away cash, um, in a separate account in that, you know, in the amount of the letter of credit. And um, so it may not be possible. And I think then the business owner who's doing business uh, with these um, customers or supply suppliers um, need to, you know, also be thinking, do I diversify, you know, try to not have all my business coming from you know one customer do i um, stop doing business because i think this customer is going to be um you know is going to have financial issues down the road i mean those are business decisions down you know at the end of the day but those are you know sometimes looking forward it's important to at least be cognizant of these issues um, because looking backwards you're, you know when you're owed millions of dollars uh it's and it's an unsecured claim there's uh very little you can do at that point i'd like to go back and bring a couple of these subjects together that we've talked about in terms of debtors and creditors when you were going over some of the bankruptcy provisions you talked about uh looking back in terms of what may have been preference uh, payments uh, or fraudulent transfers and bringing them back for creditors to obtain them that's a perspective it, it, because I take it, uh, uh, some people, when they face this kind of crisis, some businesses try essentially to take assets of various kinds or income streams of other kinds, move them out of the business, sometimes to a related entity, in order to take assets away from what creditors 
uh, could obtain, and creditors look at that very carefully. Uh, so what are we talking about in terms of, let's say, a very tempted debtor uh, to do this? What are the restrictions on transfers and arrangements within a period before a bankruptcy is filed that both debtors and creditors have to be aware of? So um, a preference is basically a transfer of um, assets or, you know, pay or a payment to a creditor within 90 days of the bankruptcy filing, within 90 days before the bankruptcy filing. Um, that allows the creditor to get paid more than it would have otherwise, that it elevated itself um, in a way that if they had not been paid, they would have been paid far less in the bankruptcy, in the hypothetical bankruptcy. So um, the preference statute exists in the bankruptcy code, but it also exists in the assignment of benefit of creditors um, statute in California. So they're very similar. And, um, and so common examples of where a creditor may have received a preference is uh, they, they're owed lots of money, they're being, you know, monitoring their receivable, they're telling the debtor we're not going to ship anymore unless you get us, you know, brought current. And so the debtor makes a payment and then files bankruptcy. That payment, if it's made within 90 days, potentially could be um, clawed back by the, uh, by the trustee. Okay. We've yeah. been talking about the range, and I want to continue this conversation about what can happen right before bankruptcy and aware of. But before we do that, you know, this the COVID and all the issues involving COVID have been very much in the news. Uh, the Daily Journal has a special section devoted to COVID, and the Daily Journal, of course, also carries a large number of news stories throughout of interest to the legal profession. Let's take another short break and hear from the Daily Journal about uh, what it is now covering in terms of other stories. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of November 30th. Los Angeles County and the California Restaurant Association have been battling in Superior Court this week over new restrictions on dining. Superior Court Judge James Chaffin declined to block the county's ban on outdoor dining, but he ordered public health officials to show concrete data justifying the heightened restrictions on restaurants. Chaffin said the county's order had many holes and lacked data to prove outdoor dining poses a significant risk of transmitting the virus. The judge is expected to rule on the restraining order on December 8th. Shareholders of the popular inspiration and idea-sharing social media platform Pinterest filed a lawsuit alleging an exclusionary and discriminatory culture. The complaint alleges a, quote, white male leadership click, end quote, led to severe reputational harm among the app's predominantly female user base. The allegations followed employee unrest and the departure of one of the company's most high-profile executives, then-chief operating officer Francois Brower. The complaint details Brower's story, as well as two black women who led the company's public policy team, Ifioma Ozoma and Erica Banks. Brower was fired during a compensation dispute and subsequently sued for gender discrimination and retaliation. Ozoma and Banks detailed experiences of discrimination at Pinterest during the Black Lives Matter protests. The shareholders say the company engaged in alleged breaches of fiduciary duty, waste of corporate assets, and abuse of control. Through the narrative of the three women's stories, the shareholders claim the board of directors made false and misleading statements of compensation practices and the true reason for Brower's departure. The California Supreme Court asked for additional briefing this year in a case that could reshape how the death penalty is applied in the state. The court's decision rests on whether the state constitution requires capital case juries to agree on the death penalty beyond a reasonable doubt and unanimously agree that aggravating factors occurred before considering them. The request for additional briefing illuminates what some attorneys say may be a cultural shift in the capital punishment debate in California, spurred by the so-called progressive prosecutor movement and a governor opposed to the death penalty. Historically, voters have been split on abolishing it, but attorneys are saying change could still be right around the corner. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from the break. We've been talking about what creditors and, debitor, and debtors look at uh, very carefully uh, in terms, and we're in the middle of a discussion about preferences and what transfers can be made 
Uh, and so the area we were talking about, uh, debtors have to be aware of it in terms of what they, they can do. Are there any penalties involved uh, to debtors other than bringing the assets or income stream back into the bankruptcy uh, if they violate these provisions of the bankruptcy code preventing transfers before filing? So a debtor doesn't really encounter any penalties if it were to prefer one creditor over another creditor. Where a debtor could find itself in trouble is if it's um, committing fraudulent transfers, which which is a totally different kind of animal. It's basically making a transfer um, to someone in exchange for which you don't receive reasonable equivalent value or where you actually make a transfer to someone in an attempt to uh, hinder and delay and defraud creditors. Um, in those cases, I think debtors have more exposure. But if you're just preferring one creditor over another because you have a squeaky wheel creditor who um, is withholding goods or services until you get them paid or brought current, and it's a critical uh, vendor or supplier, then you you pay them and there there aren't any penalties. Um, from the creditor standpoint, the creditor who received the transfer, um, they could be looking at a demand letter and then maybe litigation once the bankruptcy is filed to try to, um, to the lawsuit would try to claw back that, that payment or those payments. Um, but there are defenses because if, for example, if you provide new services or new goods after receiving the payment, then that's a defense. Um, it's called a new value defense. And if you were getting the payments consistent with a prior ordinary course practice, then uh, ordinary course of business is also a defense. When we get approached by clients wanting to know whether or not they should take the payment, um, they're worried about the uh, debtor filing bankruptcy, um, we always tell them, go ahead and take the payment. It's better to take the payment now and maybe negotiate to have to return some of it later um, than to not get it at all. So um, it is, though, something that you have to keep in mind. And one of the reasons why the uh, letter of credit works better um, is because the letter of credit is the asset of the bank and not the asset of the debtor. So when you get a letter of credit, it is not necessarily um, recoverable as a preference. So is there anything, I mean, now, you know, people often have been, when they've negotiated arrangements of all kinds, aware that bankruptcy might be filed, uh, there might be a failure of the business on the other side. But in this environment, I think everyone has become aware of a range of risks uh, that they weren't fully aware of before. Uh, and this is an event that has affected so many people and uh, you know, it affected people in, in, in a situation that very few people anticipated. So if a creditor, what, what, is the, what freedom uh, or what options does a creditor have in negotiating an original agreement, in getting advantages in the bankruptcy code? How much of the risks or the operations of the bankruptcy code can be affected by items that a creditor might want to put uh, in an agreement, in a lease or a supply agreement or, or, or other contract? Um, you want to try to minimize perhaps the amount of time you have to give notice uh, before you can terminate. Um, that way, at least if you're able to go in and get stay relief to be able to terminate, it's not that once you give notice, you have to then still wait 90 days or 120 days or even longer. So some of these longer term notice periods um, should be looked at. Uh, earlier, we talked about elevating your claim to a secure claim or somehow you know elevating it in a way that it's a higher priority um, tends to uh, reduce some of the risk of getting repaid. Um, when you're doing some kind of a workout with a debtor and you're concerned about them filing bankruptcy in the short term, uh, think about, you know, are you giving releases right away or are you having the releases get delayed until um, at least 91 days so that you don't find yourself having already released the uh, debtor and then you're, um, there's a bankruptcy filing and you don't even have a, a claim any longer because you've released that claim. And now you get sued for a preference because you got paid a settlement payment within the 90 days. 
So it um, does require that, um, especially the non-bankruptcy attorneys out there who are advising their clients who may be trying to negotiate a settlement during these times to um, be cognizant of some of these potential ramifications of a bankruptcy, especially if you're talking to someone who's telling you that they have nothing and they're going to have to file bankruptcy if you don't work something out with them. So um, it's uh, it's important to you know keep some of these bankruptcy concepts in mind when you're guiding your client on um, on settlement negotiations. Well, thank you so much. You know, we've been talking about uh, an impact on people's lives uh, that is devastating, uh, that has legal options, pretty clearly talking about the impact of COVID on the current business environment, the number of small businesses that, that, that face these issues, the individuals through guarantees or otherwise, and the range of difficulties that this is causing for creditors as well. Uh, we've been very fortunate in having with us for an hour Lele Wang Eckfell, one of the most distinguished bankruptcy practitioners in Southern California to help talk us through some of these issues, introduce the complexities, and really, I think, in many areas, give insight into many things that have not been largely recognized uh, outside the, the specific bankruptcy practice. Uh, Ms. Wang Eckville, we, we were honored to have had you, and we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, thank you for having me.